Well, we took a Memorial Day break, and now we're back on the Down and Distance podcast. And before we dive into anything else, Brandon Ross, Tara Lynch here with you. It's definitely important to address the fact that football is not the most important thing going on right now. Obviously, with the death of George Floyd and all the chaos that has surrounded both that case and many of the scenes that are being plastered on television screens across the country, cities across America, it's important to realize that we are in a dark time on top of COVID. We're having to deal through this right now, and it's important that we recognize the issue at hand, which is addressing racism and not falling victim to the dark side of what is going on. Realize the light that is trying to be shined through all these protests and make a difference in the way that the people at the center of these movements are trying to achieve. We are in a truly turbulent time that is being clouded by violence. I encourage all of you to see through this violence to the peaceful protests that you mentioned, Brandon, that are occurring every single day in this country. This problem needs to change. There are so many resources available right now that you can use. I implore all of you to choose to change, choose to listen, choose to educate yourself, choose to be anti-racist, if you are on the front lines, please stay safe. Your voice, it needs to be heard right now. Uh, and, and we hear you and we are listening. This week, we are moving on to college sports, trying to look ahead to the future after the COVID-19 pandemic. The transfer portal has made a lot of waves this offseason, as well as a possible new NCAA rule that would allow for a one-time transfer exception. So let's dive into these topics. Yes, let's let's very much turn our focus to the light at the end of the title rather than focusing on the uh, the cloud of the present. Uh, you mentioned it, a lot of action in the transfer portal this offseason all around, um, particularly at the ever-so-prevalent quarterback position. Have a lot of bodies on the move. You got Chase Bryce, you have... KJ Costello, Jamie Newman, which is honestly my pick for one of the top transfers to watch out for. Uh, which one of them out of all of them really stands out to you? I have a few, you know, let's start with Chase Bryce, you know, transferring from Clemson to Duke. Um, not a far transfer, you know, just going from South Carolina to North. But uh, when you look at what he was able to do in stepping in for Trevor Lawrence at key moments, bringing Clemson back when they were down, um, trying to just get those wins when their star was hurt down, whatever, couldn't play. He really did step up in a big way. Um, Trevor Lawrence is, you know, a, is their guy. Um, so him going to Duke, I mean, when you think of Duke, you don't think of, you know, the most robust football program um, in the ACC, but 
let's not forget that Daniel Jones was just drafted in the first round out of Duke uh, two years ago and took over for Eli Manning, one of the most uh, respected quarterbacks of all time and a future Hall of Famer. So um, Duke is not anything to scoff at when you look at going from Clemson there. Um, But a lot of people are, you know, I read something earlier today that um, I think, you know, he he could be the one that has a breakout season. Um, He could be the one that, that really can explode Um, with this transfer situation somebody else that I'm really looking at not at the quarterback position Isaiah Pryor from Ohio State going uh, to Notre Dame that could be a really big uh, impact as well Uh, you know two really big teams um, you know that you know Isaiah Pryor in the in that safety position can really go in and be a big help to the Notre Dame defense Um, and you know when you think about transferring I feel like a lot of people you know, for me, at least when I was growing up, I was like, oh, like, you know, you stick to that university and then you're going to go and get drafted probably. But, you know, you look at a Joe Burrow who transferred from from OSU, uh, Ohio State to LSU. I mean, then he had the breakout season in his career. Mel Kuyper was not even thinking he would really go that high in the draft. Then he goes first overall to the Bengals. So, uh, you know, that's pretty crazy. You look at a Jalen Hurts who had a really up and down career in Alabama, goes to Oklahoma gets drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles. So transferring can really be a blessing in disguise, I think, for some of these players. And, and they can really just break out and, and, you know, click with a different program. Consider the fact that back in 2016, there was a quarterback room at Ohio State of Joe Burrow, Dwayne Haskins, and JT Barrett. That is absurd. <laughs> uh but yeah, and Joe Burrow got his opportunity transferring out, making his star shine at LSU over the course of two seasons. And you got a player like Chase Bryce who can do that. He is very capable. I know this because as a Syracuse fan, <laughs> I watched him beat Syracuse down in Death Valley last year after Tre- Trevor Lawrence got hurt. Uh, I wasn't going to bring it up that directly, but... but uh... Yes, you, you were going to come at me with comeback, that. That was that was the comeback I was referring to, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to come in too hot. You know, we're we're just at the top of this podcast, uh, so I was going to let it go. But yes, I, big spot for coming in there. I appreciate you not wanting to bruise my ego too badly, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean Chase Bryce is someone to watch out for, and I talked about KJ Costello earlier. That's going to be interesting jumping into that situation at Mississippi State. Uh, it's they have a good. lot of transfers. Very Mississippi true. Mississippi State. They're they're really racking in a lot of top transfer guys, and that's going to make the SEC really competitive. The SEC as a whole is really seeing a lot of grad transfers starting to work their way in. You have Mississippi State. They bring in KJ Costello from Stanford, top flight signal caller, coming to work under QB guru and offensive mastermind Mike Lynch, who is, by the way, possibly one of the best Twitter follows you could possibly imagine. I mean, his Twitter is just absolutely glorious. Okay, enough. Enough <laughs> I'll about... have to give it a follow. have to give it a follow. All right, I, enough about Mike Leach. But uh, going elsewhere in the SEC, let's go to Georgia. Jamie Newman, quarterback from Wake Forest. He had a very underappreciated campaign at Wake Forest this past season. They were really good. 
they had a very strong season. They were a top 25 team for a solid chunk of the year. And a lot of it has to do with his ability. He is going into a Georgia team that just loses Jake Fromm. He can fill that hole really easily and with a lot of experience. And not only that, he's not the only one going into that quarterback room because JT Daniels is also bound for Georgia. And for those who don't know, he is five-star USC quarterback who never really got the ball rolling, lost his job, and... Now he's heading out the door and on to Athens. So that will be fascinating. It's interesting to watch those quarterbacks coming from California and, you know, the, the Pac-12 and coming in now to, to be in, uh, you know, in the SEC. That's a pretty interesting change to me. Um, I don't know why. I'm just fascinated by it that both KJ Costello uh, and um, – um, goodness gracious, JT Daniels are both coming, you know, from SoCal and, and going to be into that SEC. I think, I mean, obviously the SEC always competitive. We have established that Alabama always, you know, top, uh, LSU now, Georgia, uh, I mean, you name it. The SEC is just so competitive when it comes to this college football thing, you know, and, um, it's just it's very interesting to see this, just how many transfers they are getting and what they, what these teams are going to be like. Even more beast mode than they already are. Well, they, uh, they're pulling the reverse Jacob Eason is what they're doing. Eason, if you're not familiar, started his college career at Georgia, though he was a Washington State native and then wound up transferring back to the University of Washington, playing one year, and was just drafted by the Colts in this year's draft. Uh but yeah, so the situation with Daniels is that he is an undergrad transfer, so it is not clear he will be immediately eligible. But Newman is a graduate transfer. He is eligible to play in 2020. God forbid there be a 2020 season. Fingers thoroughly crossed on that. Um, but who of all the people on the massive transfer carousel do you see as having the biggest breakout potential? Hmm, that's a, I think it's a that's an interesting question because it it's so tough to see. I'm gonna go with Chase Bryce. I mean, we talked about it. He has that ability to step up in big games. Duke, not the best program in the country. Um, not you know it 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 doesn't produce you know stars consistently, but when it does, they're stars, <laughs> and there's no doubt about that. So I think when he has the ability to kind of showcase all of his talents and not be under, you know, the shadow of Trevor Lawrence, I think that can really give him, you know, that opportunity to be the number one guy, the leader in the quarterback room. And, you know, when he, I I mean, I hate to say it, but when he did come back against Syracuse, Trevor Lawrence got hurt. Um, He had to really step up in a really tough situation. It's not like Clemson was up and they were doing really well. And he just had to come in and make sure, you know, no fires happened. And, you know, there weren't five interceptions that went to the end zone. Um, He just had to make sure that every he had to really get that team, rally them and go for the win. And they ended up winning. So to me, that's a really big quality. That is a Joe Burrow-esque quality that, um, you know, he possesses. And I'm really interested to see. Uh, to see what he does. He's a sophomore right now. 
Um, that's what he was listed as this year. So, you know, it's, it is unclear whether or not he will be able to play immediately. Will he have to wait a year? We'll get into that a little bit later, but um, you know, it, it will be interested, interesting to see his impact on the Duke program. Yeah. And that, not to mention Dave Cutcliffe, the head coach of that Duke program, produced Daniel Jones, also the head coach that brought out the best in both of the Mannings. So obviously he has that reputation. And Syracuse lost out on a quarterback recruit from Alabama to Duke. So there you go. That's another easy way to see that pivot. Quarterback in. country, maybe a new quarterback factory in Duke. We'll see. Uh, maybe we shall see. Daniel Jones, the the results are not quite in yet on that one for New York, so we'll have to play more of a wait-and-see approach in that regard. Uh, for me, Newman is up there in terms of immediate impacts. He had amazing numbers last year, almost 3,000 yards in the air, another 500-plus on the ground, 32 touchdowns. Very easily could see him sliding into Georgia and immediately being dominant. But someone else that caused a lot of hair-raising <laughs> this past season— with his decision to, after the first few games, sit the rest of the season and wait for that opportunity to play that final year and then decided to end up transferring, De'Aaron King, who is now at the University of Miami, that man was so successful in a heavy offense that kind of revolved around him being so dynamic and athletic 50 touchdowns up through 2018, and he can really get a lot of production. I truly think that he has the potential to have the best quarterback season in his division of the ACC. Trevor Lawrence has that on lock in the ACC Atlantic. <laughs> that is his. He is not getting competition. I love Syracuse. I love Tommy DeVito. He's not touching him. Trevor Lawrence, it's all his own. But De'Ara King has the potential to prove his foil in the Coastal Division. He could very easily slide in and make his mark into potentially being a high-round draft pick even. He can make his mark similar to the way that Kyler Murray did in his one season at Oklahoma. And I know that's setting a very high bar, but he's that kind of offensive firecracker that could make that leap. Yeah, we'll have to definitely keep an eye out for him. Um, you know, one thing that kind of stands out to me when I'm when I'm looking at, you know, his abilities is his size. He is a little small, 5'11", 195. So that is a bit small for a quarterback, but, you know, he doesn't have that height um, that, you know, some of the, the more successful quarterbacks have. But, I mean, I think the comparison to a Kyler Murray is really apt in this situation. He's not a big guy either. Um, but he is able to kind of outmaneuver who he's playing, kind of like a Cam Newton, if you will. Um, he's able to run around, escape the pocket, run when needed, um, and, you know, make those quick decisions. So, uh, you know, you're comparing him to a Kyler Murray. We're going to have to see how that plays out down at the U. But I want to kind of get into some surprises. You know, who was the biggest surprise? For me, that would be... Tua Tagovailoa's brother, Talia Tagovailoa, entering the transfer portal, leaving Alabama where his brother left his mark for sure before getting drafted 
by Miami, <laughs> all connecting back to Miami now. Um, and now Talia is going to Maryland. But the caveat here is that uh, Tua was coached at Alabama by the current Maryland coach, Mike Loxley. So Talia did not play under Loxley as the offensive coordinator, but there is that, you know, familiarity with the Tagovailoa family. So it does make sense why, you know, Talia would become a Terp, but an interesting surprise. Uh, that caught me off guard. <laughs> when you when you leave Alabama in the quarterback position when your brother was such a star, that that was a, that was a surprise to me. I mean, I I definitely was shocked to see it when it happened, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought this kind of makes sense because Mac Jones, who stepped in when Tua went down early in the 2019 season with an injury, he did pretty well filling in. He was a very reliable option in the back half of that season, and he's still there in 2020. So maybe I'm not going to accuse Talia of being scared of competition, but maybe he wanted more of a guarantee. Maryland has a much lower tier when it comes to the types of recruits it typically brings in. But that said, Talia could very easily be in a situation where he could slide in without much trouble rather than having to waste another year of eligibility sitting behind Mac Jones potentially. So at least to me, that makes some sense, even if it wasn't expected for me. I'm not surprised as much by this player's decision to transfer as the decision of the school to take him. Anthony Brown, Boston college quarterback heading to Oregon. Now, he did fine. 40 touchdowns in just under 30 games. He also threw 20 picks. And in terms of what he was able to produce at Boston College, he was not the cog that kept the machine running at DC. That was A.J. Dillon. He was not the reason that that offense took flight. It was because of the running back lined up to his right or his left on any given play. To me, he has not proven that he can single-handedly carry a program that has been touted as one of the best offenses, sort of all of our generation, that we've known. Whether it be under Chip Kelly or under the current leadership they have there now. I am curious as to why. And they have a back up there, ready to compete. They have Tyler Show, who they're expecting it to be a competition. And I'm glad they're not bringing in Anthony Brown on the assumption that he will slide in and take that starting job. I understand bringing him in for the competition value, but I hope Anthony Brown's not going there with the full-blown expectation that he has a guaranteed starting job. And if Oregon lured him in with that promise, then I have questions. Yeah, if we could call it, you know, the Duck Dynasty of quarterbacks, um, they have had their fair share of successful leaders at that quarterback position. You know, when you look at, um, you know, more recently, you look at, you know, Marcus Mariota, um, now uh, Justin Herbert, 
you know, and, and when you have to go in and replace that type of player as Oregon has to do this year, it puts them in a difficult position because their offense is known to be so electric, as you said. Um, they are known to be this, you know, power offensive team out West that's just going to come in and just score as many points as they possibly can on you. So, yeah, it, it is a bit surprising to me as well, Anthony Brown going to Oregon, uh, probably sitting behind uh, Tyler Show, who backed up Herbert, as you said. I, I would not. I would be surprised if Brown ended up starting Week One or whenever Week One happens to be. Hopefully, um, you know, over Show. But I mean, we will have to see for sure. There have been crazier things that have happened. Um, but it will be an interesting, an interesting player to keep an eye on. Um, you know, when you go from being a leader on, on a BC team, not, you know, a power team in the ACC, but still Boston College, and now you're going over to, to Oregon, a step up for sure in terms of offense and uh, potentially having to sit behind someone and potentially not being the leader of that team uh, for at least this season. And not to mention that Anthony Brown for at least most of 2019, was not the guy. He had some injuries he had to deal with, and he and Dennis Grossell split time. In fact, in that game where Syracuse's defense looked like it didn't exist and BC kept running up the score, it was Dennis Grossell who was playing quarterback, not Anthony Brown. He's still around there, and now Notre Dame... Uh, with Ian Book staying one extra year, their backup, Phil Yurkovich, uh, is now heading over to BC to compete with Grossell for that job. And th it's, it's a fascinating cycle to watch, especially over the last few years with the introduction of the portal, the expansion of transfers all around the country. And Yurkovich, uh, along with some of the other players we mentioned, eligibility still up in the air for next year because of the waiver process. And that gets us into this whole debate that the NCAA has been having over whether to institute a one-time transfer exception for football, because for those who don't know, it's not the case with every sport in college athletics, the rule that you have to sit for a year when you transfer that only exists in football, men's and women's basketball and baseball. Every other NCAA sport, you can transfer one time without having to sit. So if you're, for example, a men's lacrosse player or a women's lacrosse player or a softball player, you don't have to sit. You can jump in and compete right away. And we've seen some pretty high names do that at the lacrosse level with TD Erlin, perhaps one of the best face-off men in the sport's history. Spent two years at Albany. Then went to Yale. And it's transfers galore this offseason because of the extended eligibility because of the COVID-19 crisis. And all the Ivy Leaguers cannot play their final season at their home schools, so they have to jump ship. Michael Sowers, the Tawarton favorite, for those who don't know, the lacrosse equivalent of the Heisman, transferring from Princeton to Duke. And now we're seeing that there was at least a movement this year that started 
to get that introduced for college basketball, college football, baseball, etc. But it seems like it's been tabled for now. And I don't know why you do that in a year where there are going to be so many people transferring on top of the norm because of this whole crisis. And why not when it seems like a foregone conclusion? And it we can't say that it is yet because we don't know that it would have passed. But considering that there was a lot of momentum behind it and there seems to be decent enough odds that when the motion's reintroduced next year, that it will pass. Why not send it through now and rid yourself of all the waiver hassle you'd have to go through this year? It is a bit chaotic and it is a crazy process, you know, when you when you think about it and you think about, you know, how many big names we just listed, some of them undergraduate, some of them graduate, so that doesn't apply to them. They are able to play uh, without that one year, you know, sitting or ban, whatever you would like to, to call it. But, you know, when you look at some of these young players who are trying to find a team that they fit with better um, in order to have a better career, um, it can be a bit difficult to wrap your mind around why, you know, the NCAA is waiting and has tabled this conversation. Um, you know, I think, as we've said, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has increased the amount of people who are attempting to transfer, athletes and non-athletes. Um, but now, you know, when you look at it from the athletic perspective, uh, you know, I'm not sure the NCAA has their ducks in a row for everything else that's happening. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week, uh, the NCAA said that student, student athletes could return to the campuses this summer to start their training. Um, there was, you know, some more breaking news in that regard about getting college sports back on track. So I think, you know, while you can, you can criticize the NCAA for not pushing this aspect, I think, there are so many other decisions that also need to be made and they're all <laughs> happening at the same time, unfortunately. So I think, you know, once they figure out some sort of plan for college sports, as every other league in this country is, is attempting to do right now, the NBA announced yesterday, they're looking at July 31st, the NHL uh, announced they are coming back for playoff hockey with a, very different playoff structure. So, uh, you know, the MLB has been talking about some things. So just as they're doing, the NCAA is doing the same. Uh, but they also have this addition of having to worry about students, uh, student athletes who are trying to transfer and um, find, you know, programs that fit them better. Um, and they don't have to worry about, you know, the free agent market uh, <laughs> that the other leagues have to. So there's different things and you can compare what the NCAA is doing to with with everyone else and what they're doing right now and I think it's you know we just have to keep it all in perspective because there's just so there's just so many different factors that are going into these decisions uh, because of this pandemic and because of you know some of the other situations that are that are happening all over the world right now so we gotta we gotta just wait and see yeah there's certainly a lot of things that the NCAA has to worry about and things they have to sort of figure out before they have to get to transfers. But 
Here's my problem with the idea that transfers is a separate issue because everyone's affected. And like you said, there are a lot of people for reasons, athletic or not, that are transferring. And a lot of these plans that are being made by the NCAA are not necessarily within the control of the NCAA. We're seeing different states start to take different approaches. New York is still, in parts, shut down. Meanwhile, in Texas, you can now hold a sporting event with 25% capacity in the stands. And the NCAA's philosophy could be at odds with local governance philosophy in a lot of places. And we don't know what the case numbers are going to look like in two months. We don't know what they are going to look like in two weeks. Not digging into too much of the contents of what's happening with these protests all over the country, but there's a lot of people gathering in very close quarters right now in a lot of different cities. What if this causes a spike? What if this sets the entire timeline for things back? There are so many factors that you cannot account for yet when it comes to playing this fall. But what you can account for is not having to worry about eligibility hassle. You can control whether athletes are eligible or not. That is quite literally your job. So maybe instead of fretting about hypotheticals that we cannot fully evaluate, maybe solve the things that are within your control right now if you're the NCAA. That's something that we talked about as well. We were talking about, uh, I think in our last episode, the the different, you know, conferences across, you know, the country that are in different areas. And, you know, you look at the ACC, you look at teams like, you know, Boston College, for example, we were just talking about them. They're located in, you know, very close to Boston proper. They are in a, you know, higher impact zone of the Northeast. And then you look at a school like, you know, Clemson, we were talking about earlier being in South Carolina, and there are significantly less cases down there. Um, They have different opening protocols. They have different all of that. So I do agree with you on the front that the NCAA can control this one aspect in allowing players, you know, whether it's a a one-time exception for this you know, year because of the pandemic, or if it's a rule that's instituted for, you know, the rest of time until there's another revision, um, you know, this is something that that can be done. um, And, you know, quite frankly, should be done. I mean, when you transfer as a student, in my opinion, you know, you don't have to sit a year or semester out of your classes, Uh, you can just transfer and begin. And I think that, you know, athletes that are playing in this in you know college basketball, men and women's football and baseball, and should be given those opportunities, um, not as a means of you know being able to hop around or whatever. I, I don't think it will be abused in that way. I think it's gives them an opportunity to go somewhere. As I said earlier, that's a better fit. That could be a better opportunity for them to move forward in their career, or maybe just a better academic opportunity or a better uh, just overall student experience opportunity. You never quite know why somebody is transferring. um, And you don't really sometimes know why student athletes are transferring. We can never, we don't read people's minds. So uh, there's so many different things uh, that can be going through an athlete's mind when they're transferring. And it might just, you know, be a bit easier. And then we don't have to worry about, you know, 
who's sitting here and who's going here and whatever. Um, it can just be a little bit more fluid. So maybe something that they can't control, keep their hands on. Before we go, something else to consider in the fact that college athletics is the only lens through which we view transfers in the way we do. Whether it's looking for more opportunities, whether it's looking for a better competition, whether it's looking for a better program for what you want to do academically. For those athletes, they are the only people that we view transfers for this way. Let's flip it to our sense for a little bit. I go to Syracuse. You go to Ithaca. These are both top-tier broadcasting institutions. I don't know if you know people in this situation, but I've known people who have gone to other schools, worked their tails off to transfer to Syracuse so they could come into the program here, so they could kick butt, so they could get the opportunities that the Syracuse education offers them. Now, should someone who starts their career, let's say a state school, gets their GPA up, gets admitted as a transfer, and then comes to Syracuse to study sports broadcasting, be forced to wait a year to start at the student TV or radio stations? Should a student who gets the chance to transfer to an Ivy League school not be allowed to study the courses he transferred there to study or assist in the research at labs he wants to research at just because he had to transfer? Something to think about in terms of the way we view college athletics transfers versus transfers for other things outside of that realm. And I think the fear in that, just to add quickly, is that because it's athletics, it could be seen as, you know, I'll give an example here, Stefan Diggs, you know, going to Buffalo. Um, you know, maybe Stefan didn't agree with the Minnesota system anymore, whatever. Maybe he just wanted a bigger contract. We don't know. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of his contract at Minnesota, nor do I know the ins and outs of his contract at Buffalo. But a lot of times when, when professional athletes look to move around, it's because of money and contract. Um, so I, I think that the fear, and this could just be my personal speculation, but in my opinion, it could be that colleges and universities, the NCAA, whomever, is afraid that if they become so fluid, that people will start transferring all the time in terms of getting a better quote unquote contract, even though these athletes are not paid. So who knows what is happening, but I definitely agree that, you know, if, if I transferred uh, to Cornell university, also located in Ithaca, New York to start researching something, um, I, you know, I would fully expect to be able to get into that position to research or to, to be in the classes or whatever. Um, so maybe we should start thinking about those athletes in the same way. Um, Cause I, I'm not sure that that abuse of the system would ever happen. And that could be a fear of, of the NCAA or other colleges and universities. I think the main concern amongst coaches when it comes to the one-time transfer exception is tampering uh, because 
that's something Syracuse basketball had to deal with, uh, with Torrey and Thompson. He was a forward. The NCAA found that a Seton Hall assistant had called Torian's mother over 150 times while he was still a Syracuse student before making the decision to transfer to Seton Hall, where, by the way, he did not make much of an impact in the end. But that's probably the only concern that I think is legitimate about opening that door because you might have the situation of, oh, you maybe have someone playing at a lower-level institution, maybe an FCS program, who gets word through a grapevine that is kind of hard to trace that if he enters the portal, Georgia will come calling or Alabama will come calling or UCLA will come calling. That's a concern that I feel is legitimate, but does it outweigh the other factors at play? And that's something worth considering, but that's all the time we have for this edition of Down and Distance. Tara, any parting thoughts? Please stay safe on the front lines. We need to be united as one country to combat and reduce this systemic problems that, that has been integrated into our structures since the beginning of this country. Um, one resource that, that I will suggest to all of you, while you know, we are we are not a political podcast, but one thing that has actually been helping me um, is a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Akendi. Uh, he is a doctor at American University uh, teaching there. And one thing that really stood out to me from the start, it's the definitions in chapter one, anti-racist, one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. So please choose to do this. Choose to fight this fight and be a part of change. Fingers crossed. Fingers thoroughly crossed. For Tara Lynch, Brandon Ross, we'll see you next week.